As they come to pass out our outlines this morning, I would encourage you to get an outline for maybe some of the younger children that you've not gotten an outline for before, if they can write at all, and maybe a parent could help them with their writing a little bit, I think you'll find it to be a blessing. Well, fall is upon us, and as we looked out our window today, there were seven turkeys in the front yard. That's always exciting for us to see the wildlife around our house. And uh, so if you need a Thanksgiving turkey, you know where you can find one. Although Lincoln tells me that one day he shot one and skinned or took the feathers off, and by the time you got the fluff of the feathers off, there wasn't much left. So I'll warn you about that right now. Fall is always a special time for me, going back to school. I guess uh, for some people that's not an exciting thing, but for me it was. It was always especially exciting because as I walked into my new classes, I had a new horizon. I had an A in every class I walked into, at least for the first day. And I, I had this vision that I was going to master this subject, whatever it was, by the time the semester was over. And that didn't always work out quite according to my expectation either, especially in college and electrical engineering. But God is good, and uh, the seasons change, and it shows us His faithfulness. And as we think of returning to school, I'd like to challenge you today to think about examining yourself and your study and understanding of God's Word. We are going to uh, take some time here, to having finished Isaiah, to look in our Bibles. And I, I felt burdened as I thought of uh, the rest of my life, so to speak, that I'd like to put together some material, perhaps a booklet, that would be a framework, especially for all of us, that everybody ought to master in order to have a basic understanding of the Word of God. In order to be able to navigate through the Scriptures and have a conception of what's going on and how things fit together. And so that is going to be my goal. And uh, I'm going to ask you this morning to examine yourself, as a matter of fact. I'd like you to take your outline, turn to the back page, and open it up to the first page before the back. And you'll find there letter D, the seven great covenants of the Bible. Uh, these are the seven great covenants of the Bible, which correspond to the seven dispensations of the Bible. Quiz time. Back to school, fall term. I want to give you a quiz this morning. Take your pencil or your pen, and Brother Gigrick is going to come to the piano here and play some music for a few minutes, and I want you to take my quiz. I want you to fill in the blanks. Ha! Our outlines are a little different this time, aren't they? Time to get back to work. Time to start studying and watching closely to fill in the blanks. I want you to take a few moments and give yourself a 14-point easy quiz. And that is the names of the seven covenants and the names of the seven dispensations. I'd like you to just think about that to stimulate your mind this morning as we look into the message. And so uh, if everybody has it, it's letter D, the seven great covenants of the Bible. If you just take the next few moments and see how many of the blanks you can fill in. There'll be 14 blanks total, and then we'll see how we did as a group. So do that right now, if you would, please. Time's up. Let's grade our tests, okay? Now, I saw Zach looking at his wife's paper. I don't know if he was checking to make sure she got them all right or if he was copying, but... Uh, I'm going to give you the answers, <clears throat> and our goal right at the moment isn't to fill them in. We're, we're going to come back to this, and you can fill them in later. But just to keep things moving, we just want to grade our quizzes right now and not try to write in the answer if you didn't get it. So here we go. 
<clears throat> Number one, the Edenic covenant is the dispensation of innocence. The Edenic covenant is the dispensation of innocence. Following the Adamic covenant is the dispensation of conscience. Following the Adamic covenant is the dispensation of conscience. Following the Noahic covenant is the dispensation of human government. Noahic, human government. Following the Abrahamic covenant is the dispensation of promise. So it's Abrahamic and promise. Following the Moses, Mosaic covenant is a dispensation of law. So it's Mosaic and law. And following the new covenant is the dispensation of the church, the new covenant made in the upper room with the disciples. And uh, the next one, the millennial new covenant, may have tripped some of you up, so everybody gets that one free, one of the 14, millennial new covenant. I haven't referred to it as a millennial new covenant before always. And that is the period of the kingdom. Okay, so 14, one's free. Add up your total score. Let's see how we did. Anybody get all 14? Rebecca, did you get all 14? What? <laughs> how many got 13? Great. 12. I need to look up above, too. Eleven. Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven. Great, great, good. Six. Boy, some young hands going up there, too. Five. Well, we won't go any further than that. <laughs> okay. Well, that's demonstrated that some are students that study to show themselves approved unto God. And maybe some of us need to study a little harder, okay? So let's go back to the beginning of our outline. And I'm going to follow the outline probably pretty closely today. You never know for sure until it's over, but I'm going to make that my goal. And uh, we want to talk about gaining a working understanding of the Bible. Uh, I was terribly appalled when one of the presidential candidates some years ago uh, made a statement about applying an Old Testament truth to the church today. And that Old Testament truth was a part of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament and has no relevance to us today other than as a teaching tool as uh, considering what it meant to the Israelites at the particular time in which God gave it to them. And so we need to have some ways to know how to approach our Bible in order to understand what God wants us to know from his precious word. I want to say, first of all, that Christ must be preeminent. Christ must be preeminent. That's our first blank there. Uh, you have to have a saving relationship with Christ. That is essential. Some churches have been accused of bibliolatry or making the Bible an idol. And there is a danger of that. An emphasis so much on having knowledge of the content of Scripture that we lose sight of the fact that the reason we have knowledge of Scripture is to point us to Christ and to show us how to have a personal relationship with Him. It says in John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus telling the parallel, the story of the vine, He says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, 
The same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do what? Nothing. Uh, scripture is not a magic formula. Scripture is got going to, well, it'll, 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 following the blessings and con following the concepts of Scripture, God will bless people who follow the concepts of Scripture. But for it really to make a difference in your life, you need to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. But it goes far beyond that because we also need to have, in order to understand Scripture, the illuminated work of the Holy Spirit. It is necessary and is the only is only available through salvation the illuminating illuminating of the holy spirit the bible teaches us that studying the bible and understanding it properly is not just an academic process it is a academic spiritual process and we need to have with us and in us the spirit of god in order to have a proper understanding and interpretation of the Scripture. Look at what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. That's, by the way, a quote from Isaiah. Remember that? But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. His Spirit is in the Godhead the person who illuminates, who lights up our understanding of Scripture. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Did you see what it said there? But the Spirit which is of God, we have been given the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of Him. He is involved in illuminating us in our understanding of Scripture. Now, I don't want to demean the fact that the Holy Spirit has a role in the lives of unbelievers also, but it's somewhat of a different role. It is a role of convicting them using the Word of God and bringing them to an understanding of their own sinfulness, need of a Savior, the availability of a Savior. That is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that is in the life of the unbeliever. But in the life of the believer, there is a much more extensive, necessary, deep uh, work of the Holy Spirit in helping us to understand God's Word. Now, it's stated negatively in 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14. Right reads like this. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, man's wisdom, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now, catch this next, this next statement. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. There are many Bible scholars in the world, Bible scholars who do not know Christ. I remember when I attended Purdue University in engineering school, I was required to take some general education courses. I appealed to my advisor to be able to take the Bible as literature at uh, school there. So I took two semesters of the Bible as literature. Um, had, a, had a wonderful professor, except he wasn't saved. And the chair there 
to be able to teach the class in Bible was a, was a very cherished, jealously held chair. I mean, men aspired to hold that chair. It was prestigious to teach Scripture. And yet they weren't teaching it to see men saved. They were teaching it quite often for their own motives and their own reasons, their own philosophies and their own thinking. Uh, no, you need to have the Holy Spirit. The natural man is not equipped to understand thoroughly the Word of God. Yes, he's under conviction as God works with the Word in his life, but an understanding of the Word of God comes from the Spirit of God who illuminates the believer. So I want you to understand, first of all, that Christ is preeminent. Christ is at the center of studying the Word of God, not just in terms of knowing about him and who he is, but in terms of having a part in him as being on the vine that you do that which is uh, faithful to be accomplished for him because we're attached to him. And the Bible is not just an ex extra activity. It is essential to growing closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we want to go next. The Bible plays an essential role in knowing Christ. There's an interplay here between the Bible and God. On the one hand, we need to know God personally and interact with him on a personal level. On the other hand, he's given us the Bible here, which gives us information about him and how we can interact with him on a personal level. But the two have to go together. Now, we need to recognize, though, too, as we put our emphasis on studying the Bible and learning the Bible, that there have been people in history, I would have liked to have located an account of one of them, and I wasn't able to do so, but there are individuals in history who've had very, very, very little Scripture who've come to Christ in times of persecution when the Word of God was not readily available, who came to Christ maybe knowing simply the gospel and a, and a brief understanding of who the persons of the Godhead were. And with that little bit of knowledge, they went to the death standing true to Jesus Christ because they had a vital personal relationship with him. But on the other hand, God has chosen to put us in an era we're in a time of peace, a time of relative security, and we have the opportunity to study this book. And having been given the opportunity, we need to avail ourselves of it, and yet at the same time, not lose sight of the fact that it's not an academic exercise, it's an exercise to enhance our relationship with God. God uh, highly reveres his word. This next statement I'm going to read to you is an amazing statement. Listen carefully. Psalm 138, verse 2. I will worship, worship toward the holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. The name of a person in the Old Testament frequently said something about who they were. And the name of God, and when it talks about God's name, it's talking about God's characteristics, what we would call in theology his attributes, who he is. And he, he says here that his word, he elevates above his name. That's amazing. Now, that shouldn't make us Bible worshipers, but it should teach us this, that apart from the Bible, we do not have a clear, complete, as God wants it to be, understanding of who God is and who Jesus Christ is. We have natural revelation all around us. It tells us something about the power of God. It tells us something about the faithfulness of God. 
But in order to know exactly who God is, we have to have not general revelation, but special revelation, which he gives us in the Word of God. And there he tells us who he is, and his Word goes on, and it's by his Word that we know who he is, and that's why he he elevates his Word above his name. We learn his name, we learn his characteristics by his Word that he has given to us. Job said this, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lip. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I don't know where Job got the words of his mouth. Job, it's thought, is the oldest book of the Bible. And Job was written in the time of Abraham. But perhaps through tradition perhaps through records that were written but had not yet been canonized in the Old Testament and so forth, even his own record, uh, he heard the word of God. And he says, I value that more than all my esteemed food. It is only, the Bible is the only source revealing Christ to us. In all of uh, other history, it's clear that Christ was here and he made a major impact and we, we find different uh, results of his ministry and work here, but very, very few direct references to his person. Josephus, a historian, Jewish historian of the time of Jesus, records specifically about Jesus in his writings. But there are very few, if any, other references to him. And the Bible is our source of revealing Christ to us, but revealing him to us accurately because the word of God is inspired and inerrant. John 4, 539, Jesus speaks, says, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The Bible teaches us truth about the world. Jesus answered the Pharisees and said, you do, you do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. To understand the world, the things around us will err, will we'll make mistakes if we don't see them through the eye of the Word of Scripture. And for example, we look around us at the animal world and we see a very vicious world, uh, predators in our backyard. And in more remote places, uh, it's not even safe for a person to be there because the predators are so great. Why is that? Is that because the world is so harsh and hard? Well, we find out from the Bible, that's because man sinned against God and a curse was put upon this world. God didn't design it that way. He doesn't intend it to be that way. He's going to reverse it, as a matter of fact, at the beginning of the kingdom partially and totally in the eternal state. But we understand by virtue of the word of God, that that is a result of the curse that came upon man because of our sin, and actually we are responsible for the animal kingdom's characteristics of reciprocity and pursuit of one another. The, the Bible gives the message of how to be saved, Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It is the means of our sanctification, Jesus prayed in his great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, which was the great prayer he prayed just before his crucifixion. He said to his father, John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify simply means set apart. And Jesus is praying for his followers both then and throughout all the ages to come the period of the church in particular, to set them apart, 
We shouldn't blend in with the world. We shouldn't think like the world. Our positions in politics and social issues and all other matters of life are to be based on the Bible, God's holy word, and not on our own thinking or what our contemporaries are thinking. In that sense, God sets us apart. Our thinking is different. Our behavior is different. Our appearance is different as we seek to serve the Lord, and that's done through instruction from his word as the Holy Spirit convicts us and confirms us to both change and pursue that which we have already changed in following the Lord. The Bible is the means of our sanctification. The Bible is living and powerful. Living and powerful. Oh, the famous verse, so precious, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing needed to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. A two-edged sword. This is a good example. I remember when I, some years ago, uh, my, my kids were in Iwana, and uh, they would get awards. We had a leader who would give special awards for doing good work and memorizing a lot of verses. And Charles uh, had done exceptionally well in his Bible memorization. And usually they gave him some kind of a shirt with an uh, athletic team or something on it. And he hardly knew there were athletic teams, let alone the names of them. And uh, so he requested a sword. And Butch Cheryl got him a sword. We got a telephone call today. It came in. He says, you know, we got this sword here. I think that I'm, this is very much like it, I think. He says, awful sharp. You, you mind if I dull it down a little bit before I give it to him? We said, by all means, dull it down. But normally this is very sharp. You know what? It doesn't matter which way you swing it. It always has a sharp blade pointed in that direction. It's quick. It's powerful. It is the Word of God is living. You've probably heard the illustration before that if somebody refuses to hear your use of the Word of God because you haven't proven that it's true, you still go ahead and use it because it's living in and of itself. And it will by itself vindicate itself without having to prove to someone that it's true before they receive it. And so we take the sword of the Word of God and we, we preach with it and we, we see people saved through it. But notice the verse also says it's able to divide asunder between soul and spirit and between bone and marrow. Uh, as you all know from your health classes, in the body, in the bones of the body, uh, there is marrow. And the, and the marrow gradually changes to bone as you go to the outside of the bone. And uh, the, the, where the bone ends and the marrow starts is maybe hard to define sometimes. But the Bible can make those distinctions. It can make distinctions to help us understand truths in life that we can be confounded and puzzled with without having that counsel. I'd like you to look at this positional statement that I put here. Lawrence is in New Orleans now. 
and they're searching for a church to attend. And he said, from all they can find, within an hour of them, there's not any church that's not exactly like this church, but basically doctrinally in the camp this church is in. And he sent me a church that he was thinking about and to look at on the website. And this was in their positional statement. I thought this was very good. This is what it says. We give ourselves to the study and application of the Bible, not for the sake of simply knowing the Bible, but for the sake of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ, who is revealed throughout the pages of Scripture. For from him and through him and to him are all things. That's a good statement that balances out the need for a personal relationship with God and the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit and learning and studying the Word of God and its content so we can better serve the Lord. I'd like to mention to you next in this study, be sure you use proper hermeneutics. Boy, that big word, hermeneutics. H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C-S. Hermeneutics. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, the familiar verse says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That word there in English, rightly dividing, is only used in Greek one time in the New Testament. And that word that is used there is the idea of guiding on a straight path. Walking right along the edge on a straight path. Not veering to the left, not veering to the right, but saying dead center. In a connotation translation, we might say, it means to teach correctly. Rightly dividing the Word of God. It's important that we do that. God has given His Word to work in the lives of people and when we go as a vessel carrying the Word of God to share with someone, we don't want it to be a vessel that changes the Word of God because we've misinterpreted it. We want to rightly divide. We want to take them straight down the middle of exactly what that word or that text means in the Bible. That has been a, I hope, I think, at least in our attempts, to be the uh, standard from this pulpit is to give you the Word of God and interpret it right down the center the way the Lord would want it to be. It says here if you're going to do that, though, you have to study. This is an intense word. It, it means to do something with intense effort and motivation, to work hard, to do one's best. A man by Alexander McLaren is a famous Bible expositor that wrote a commentary and he used to tell people that when he sat down at his desk, he didn't wear his slippers, he wore his work boots. Because studying the Word of God can be work. It can, it can require diligence. I remember in the pre-computer days, back probably in the 70s or 80s, one of my sons came to me, who was within the sound of my voice, and uh, I was sitting in a room getting ready for a Sunday school class or a message or something. And around me on all the floor I had all these different books. I must have had maybe eight, nine, ten books that I was consulting. Some language sources, some commentaries. And he said, do you really need to do all that to study the Word of God? Well, no, 
you don't really need to do all that. But if you're a preacher or a pastor, you better be doing a lot of that because you're wanting to understand that text the best that you can understand it. And hermeneutics has to do with that. Hermeneutics is the interpretation or explanation of Scripture. It is the interpretation or explanation of Scripture. Uh, it is a science and an art. It is a science in the sense, I'm okay. I did not fall. Okay. It is a science in the sense that it follows certain rules, but it is an art in the sense that it requires good judgment as to how to categorize. We'll see some of that a little bit later. How to categorize things as we study them. So hermeneutics is very important. And we need to understand that when we're going to study the Word of God the way we should, whether it be a preacher or not, it requires some diligence. We can't function with the phrase, an apple, you know, the phrase, an apple a day keeps the dentist away, or an apple a day keeps you healthy and, and happy, okay? No, uh, a verse a day keeps the devil away. That's what some people think. A verse a day is enough. And just reading it in a minute or two and maybe having a short prayer is sufficient. Well, some days are like that. But there need to be days when you dig into the Word of God. There need to be weeks when you take time, some weeks you may not have time, to review the message of the week or to study some particular thing that's come across your path that you need to know about for the sake of your family or children or relationships or whatever reason, but there needs to be some time that's put into the Word of God that is intense and continuous and ongoing because you will not grow the way the Lord wants you to grow if it's just a verse here and a verse there and a verse someone else, somewhere else. Hermeneutics, then, is the interpretation and explanation, science and art of interpreting Scripture, taking Scripture and passages and verses together and understanding what they mean. There are four basic principles of hermeneutics. And uh, you need to know what these are because what you do with your Bible and what it says will be determined by these principles. And you'll see how that works out as we talk about them. Number one, our interpretation should be literal, literal or normal. The way you'd read a newspaper, interpret as you would any factual report taking into account figures of speech, but not allegorizing or spiritualizing the text. Uh, a good illustration of that is found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, where the Bible says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested in the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. That verse, interpreted literally, demands six literal 24-hour days. And here's why. It says, Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The Sabbath day is one 24-hour period. And it, it, and it was the seventh day. And so it demands, both by the grammar, which we'll get to in a minute, of the text, and by the context in Scripture at large, that those six days be literal 24-hour days. And yet many coming to the Scripture and not willing to accept the testimony of Scripture over the statements of modern science, try to say that those days are ages, not 24-hour literal days. That is spiritualizing the text, that is allegorizing the text, 
Read literally, the text says six 24-hour days, and applying the rules of grammar in the context of this verse, even the verse itself demands that, let alone other proofs we could turn to in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It should be literal, a literal understanding. Yes, there are figures of speech. Last week we ran into one where God compared Israel's longevity to the longevity of the new heavens and the new earth. And he said, as the new heavens and the new earth shall continue forever, so will I bless my people Israel. That's a loose paraphrase. So will I bless my people Israel like that. That's a simile, a comparison with like or as. And so there's a comparison there of the new heavens and the new earth with the longevity for Israel. And that's a simile, it's a figure of speech. Yes, there are similes or metaphors. I have a book at home about that thick by E.W. Bollinger written in the 1800s in which he seeks to go through the Bible and identify all the figures of speech in the Bible. <sighs> what a life he must have had. But I'm sure that many times it was very rich and rewarding as well. Okay, secondly, it should be grammatical. Grammatical, according to the rules of grammar. Some people thinking that this is a sacred book have tried to elevate it as if there's something special about the way you interpret it. They have uh, assigned numbers to letters. They have taken letters of, of uh, first part of sentences and all sorts of varied uh, methods and terminology and systems to try to come up with a hidden meaning in Scripture. The concept that when you read it literally, you get the first meaning, but as you go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, it gets more spiritual. And the really spiritual people don't just take it literally, but they go beyond the first layer, the peel. They peel the peel back to get, no, no, no. God, God gave us the word so we'd understand him. He gave us the word so we'd know who he was. Not to create a puzzle to mystify or give us mystery. Yes, there are mysteries in the Bible. But God intends for us to understand his word, and we interpret it grammatically. Subjects and verbs and direct objects and participles and participial phrases, all these things contributing to the meaning. I call it the perspicuity of Scripture. That's kind of an unused word, but it's a real good word, perspicuity. Perspicuity means, perspicuity means something that you can see through that is clear. 1 John 5.13 says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. He doesn't want them to have to guess. The Word of God is intended to make things clear, and it should be interpreted grammatically. Thirdly, it should be interpreted historically. As true history, naming historical persons, historical places and things, and having its place among other historical events, both geographically and chronologically. Uh, Pastor Wesco has been very careful about the Bible hour. He's got timelines for you all the time, doesn't he? He wants you to see where these events actually fit into the flow of history, that they're not just made-up fantasies. Many world religion books are fantasies and can't be documented geographically or historically. But the Bible is not that way, though some have questioned some of the historical and time references in the Bible. As time goes by, they tend to be more and more authenticated, not more and more proven that the Bible is in error. 
Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, is a famous text of Jesus commenting on the issue of divorce. And in this text, he's confronted by two groups of uh, Pharisees, two, two different groups that held different positions. Uh, there was the Hillel group and the Shammai group, and we're not going to try to teach that whole section now, but one be believed in a conservative, they, uh, they both believed in divorce, but one said divorce for anything, and the other one said, no, you've got to be more stern about that. And in the course of the discussion there, Jesus says to them uh, in chapter 19, verse 4, and he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. What he's doing here is he's not taking sides like they wanted him to do with one group or the other, and thus split his following. He was saying, You're both wrong. There should not be divorce. But the issue we're talking about here is, and he makes a statement, he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. He recognizes the historicity of the creation account. It's not a myth. It's not a story. It's not emblematic or symbolic. It is a literal truth that took, past, it took place in history in the past at a certain time. He speaks of it historically. And so we interpret the Bible historically. And then finally, culturally. Understanding that various practices, actions, and phrases have cultural significance that may be different from how we would understand it today. And the prime example that's been batted back and forth and abused by uh, uh, discreditors of the Bible and explained over and over again by those who teach the Bible is a situation with Ruth. And it shall be that... Her, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth 3, 4, And it shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. This is a cultural procedure for a person to claim a kinship with an individual. And uh, that explains the cultural aspect that explains that whole situation there was not a situation of immorality. So we interpret the Bible, first of all, what? Literal, grammatical, historical, cultural. You ought to burn that into your brain. Literal, grammatical, historical, cultural. That is very important. Now, some further considerations here. Where, where, where do we get these principles? We just make them up? Did I just make them up? No. If you look at your Bible and read your Bible, it should be the source of how you interpret the Bible. If at all possible, we should get our principles for interpreting the Bible from the Bible, not think up our own principles that we impose on the Bible. And that's what we do here because Jesus and the apostles, when they interpreted the Old Testament interpreted it literally. And the prophecies of the Old Testament about the first coming of Christ were fulfilled literally, grammatically, and historically. There are all three of those kinds of things in prophecy that work out. So the, these, these four concepts, literal, grammatical, historical, cultural, are derived from the Bible, from the apostles, and from the fulfillment of prophecies. Uh, Furthermore, be consistent in your application of these principles. 
the most literal interpretation is the best. If you're assigning a symbolic nature to something, you better be sure it's a symbol and that it can't be taken literally. Uh, other schools of thinking don't take the most literal and then move into the emblems and symbols as they have to because there is something there that is not literal. It's a figure of speech or a, or a symbol or something. The, the opposing schools start the other way. They, say they assume it's a symbol and they assign a meaning to it. That gets you into all kinds of trouble because you are not infallible in your understanding of Scripture. And uh, it creates a great deal of problems when a person starts from that direction because then their own presuppositions and their own thinking affects the text more than what the text actually said. And then notice the New Testament expands, develops, and explains the Old Testament, but does not change, listen carefully, but does not change what it meant to original readers. This has been done greatly in the... Uh, uh, the uh, replacement theology world. We have an example here. Well, here's the point. If God in the New Testament or Christ in the New Testament changes the meaning of something he said, something said to Old Testament saint, he has made himself a liar. Because when he said that to that Old Testament saint in the Old Testament scripture, it was received and read as truth from God. And for God to change that later and say what it really means is this, is to make God a liar because he lied to those people back there. What he knew they thought he was saying, he now says is not what I was saying. And so God entered into deliberate deception. And God can't do that. God cannot do that. Here is the, the greatest illustration. Matthew chapter 21, verse 43. This is a classic verse in this subject. Therefore, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you, he's talking to the Pharisees and the Jews of the day, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now, this could say no future for Israel. The people who propound this understanding turn you to Peter and say that it says there that today the church believers are a chosen generation, a priesthood, a nation. And so they say, based on 1 Peter and Matthew, God has taken away the kingdom, the nation from the Jews, and given it to the church, and there is no future for Israel. That cannot be. That cannot be. Another meaning is nations means future nation of Israelites that do indeed bring forth fruits of righteousness. And uh, it must be that understanding. It must be the second, and here's why. The first would make God a liar, not keeping his unconditional promise to Israel. You could interpret the verse either way, by the way. Uh, if you take it out of context, you could interpret it either way and be just. But it demands that it be interpreted the second way because the other would make God a liar. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 35 and 36, it says, Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. This is the God who is the creator of everything, 
who is the sustainer and maintainer of everything, and the Lord of hosts is his name, if those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Well, we all know that the movement of the planets and the natural things on this earth go on and on. In fact, we're promised in the Noahic covenant that it will be so. And so anyone who tries to claim that there is no future for Israel is making God a liar just on Jeremiah 31, verse 35. Next, in thinking about Scripture and my, my students in school of theology, context, 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 context. You've got to read the verse in the context in which it's given and in the flow in which it follows. The immediate context, the time of the event, the place of the event, the book, whether it's in the Old or New Testament. And finally, be alert to your presuppositions. We all have presuppositions. We have things that we think about God and about the world and about church and about each other that are, we've held so long and have been reinforced so much that we just hold them as being concepts without even really knowing that we're doing that. And that's a presupposition. A Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. We have a fallen nature. Our fallen nature causes us to look at some things erroneously because we want to justify ourselves. And we have to be careful that we don't carry an understanding or a belief that we've inherited from our parents and their parents and their parents or that we've inherited from our culture or that we've picked up in our own thinking that is not right. We have to re-examine our presuppositions before God. We're going to stop there. And I just want to challenge you with this thought. Are you an apple-a-day Christian? Or in other words, are you a verse-a-day Christian? You know, your world will open up. It'll break apart like a shining light if you will take more time, a little more time, to be in the Word of God. We're going to talk about some other things that I hope would be helpful to you, but just as a word of testimony, I uh, went for years in a major denomination that, especially with regard to prophecy, tended to allegorize or just disregard prophetic texts. Go into Isaiah, pick a verse here, pick a verse there. Wouldn't think of going through it the way we went through it. Then one day I met a young girl named Rebecca. And I had been exposed to this somewhat before. But I came to... Uh, be confronted with the idea of literally interpreting the Bible. And, and as I read through books of the Bible, especially the prophets, especially Isaiah now that I think about it, when I was in, when I was in Purdue, because all, all of our reading was almost all Bible passages, I would get excited about those Bible passages and I would pace the floor and I would more or less think of them literally even though that isn't what the teacher was thinking. But when I came to the concept of interpreting this book literally, my whole world changed. Texts that didn't make sense before suddenly made sense. Texts that didn't fit together fit together. As I begin to understand the covenants and the dispensations that are based on the covenants. So I challenge you to follow these messages closely. 
but also take time, serious time, to get into your Bible and study to show thyself a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Father in heaven, go with us as we set this goal. As family, Bible time continues and restarts virtually. As we have our Bible memorization, our preaching, teaching, our church, Sunday by Sunday. Lord, help us to be diligent, to seek out the preacher or the speaker or father or mother and be sure we understand what is being taught about the Word of God and grope with it, wrestle with it personally, that we might hold the Word of God as a personal conviction because we've studied it and found it to be true. Dear Lord, convict us to be more faithful in the study of your word. Guide us and direct us. Provide us with the teachers we may need. And may all of it bring glory to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and honor to his Father and his dear Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And may you receive the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.